I suspect you're probably not. Is uh, spring break like so far in your rearview window you actually forgot you had one because you're so busy and stressed? Sorry. I said that with a smile because the busier you get this time of the year, the less busy I am. Um, it's sunny outside and it's the best time of the year. The basketball tournament is still going on. Baseball started. I get to play. So if you decide to be irresponsible or you have time, let me know. love to hang out and play with you. Uh, or grab lunch in the next couple of weeks before we all go our ways at the end of the year, which is coming so quickly. Um, it's been a good year. It's been a quick year. We started this year in chapter one of Romans. It's a long time ago. And in some ways, uh, this message loops back uh, to some of those major themes at the very beginning of the year in Romans 1. Uh, here at the end of the book, Paul is summing up the heart of his message. And last semester we talked about how God is, through Jesus, making all things new. In this semester we've been talking about the new community that Jesus makes. And in our text tonight, we're going to see how he brings these two major themes together. So I'm going to be reading chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. You can follow along up there as you like, or in your Bible. Let's see. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. That each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you with the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. All right, if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this word, and we pray, Spirit, that you would show us Jesus and grant us hope in him. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of the most celebrated movies of 2010 was The King's Speech, starring Colin Firth. Did anyone see that excellent movie? Yeah, so it's a really interesting movie and a really interesting concept. Uh, the movie takes you to Great Britain in the late 1930s as the German Nazi threat looms on the other side of the continent, oh, excuse me, of the, of the ocean. And... Um, uh, Britain's dealing with its own vacuum of power. Uh, King George V is growing old. The oldest son, Prince David, is far more interested in serving himself than serving the people. And the second son, Albert, uh, seems like a great candidate to serve the people. He has a wonderful heart. However, he has one huge problem. He can't speak. He can't speak well. 
And as a king, you need to be able to stand before the people and speak for the people in such a way that you would rally them together around a common vision and a common mission. And he had such a terrible stutter that he knew he simply could not do it. Um, It was a wonderfully successful movie, uh, both uh, critically and at the box office. And Colin Firth, in an interview, explained in some ways what he thinks was the uh, the chief um, reason behind its success. He, he talked at length about the nature of suffering and how we often identify with suffering. And it was very important for him that people that suffer with stuttering to sort of understand or feel that he understood their plight. And they did that he uh, accurately portrayed their struggle. Then he went on to say this, the reason why people tell stories, read stories, and see films is to feel less alone. The reason we love stories is because it brings us together. And that's true if you think about it experientially. You've sat around a bunch of friends and told stories until you not only just ate from like the, the, the laughing, but you were just delighted with that group of people. That's what it's like to be with close friends and family. It's just this wonderful, warm place. That stories can bring us together. And what's interesting about this story, the king's speech, is that even though it's about a king that none of us heard about 75 years ago, we as a country put $400 million in to go see it. Like, that story spoke to us. We wanted in on it. It spoke to us. And uh, it had the power to bring people together. Uh, we as Christians, I'm assuming some of you in the room are Christians, I'm talking to you, we often forget the power of story. Uh, we, we often try to bring people together. We try to give them hope. Um, we try to give them a sense of belonging. But when we forget the story, we resort to doing all kinds of gimmicky things to bring people together and give them hope and a sense of belonging. Uh, we end up Dismissing the story, maybe we're ashamed of it because it's old, like it's really old, like really, really old. And us moderns, postmoderns, and post postmoderns, we're, we're sort of ashamed and dismissive of old things. Uh, so we forget the story, we eschew it, we try new things, new, sexy, awesome, powerful things, maybe, to try and make community happen, to bring people together. And uh, what we're going to see tonight is that this old story. Is never really old. It's always new. And it has the power to bring people together. That uh, God, through this ever new story, is bringing people together. So tonight we're going to talk about one story, one people, and one mission. So how God is using this one great story to make one people with a mission. Okay? Now, the story is admittedly old. Paul admits that right at the beginning of the text. Paul is writing almost 2,000 years ago. And as he writes, he's talking and quoting from the Old Testament, which is even older. And the texts he quotes from are somewhere between 700 and 1,200 years before the birth of Jesus. So at this point, we're talking about texts that are 2,700 to 3,200 years old. Really, really old things. And uh, what we tend to do for the most part in our current day and age, is quickly dismiss old things as irrelevant. Before we even give them a listen, what we have before us is an old ancient story. And what we often do with really old things is simply assume they have nothing to tell us before we even engage it 
It is a logical fallacy, is what it is. If we did this in an argument, someone would say, but you didn't even listen to what I said before you disagreed. You just simply assumed I had nothing to say to you. Uh, and that's what we often do with old things, without even hearing the story. And we need to stop for a moment and get over the fact that it's an old story and hear the story. Because the story is amazing. And, and the contours of the story are given to us in this text. It begins with a promise. And, and Paul talks about that promise in verse 8. I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now here Paul is saying that this old story about Jesus actually goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. Where God made a promise that he was going to bring renewal to all things. He was going to fix everything. And the way he was going to do it was he made a promise to Abraham this circumcised dude, this old Jewish guy, that God would bless the world through the line of Abraham. That he would use this Jewish nation, this group of people, that he would bless them, and that they would be a means of blessing the entire world. Those are the promises at the headwaters of redemption that God makes in Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. And the Old Testament, this old story, is the continued unfolding, the continued revelation of the nature of that story. We get a little bit more of the story, we get a little bit clearer picture of how this thing will be fulfilled, until we discover, eventually, that this story is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. You see it in a couple ways in our text. Uh, for one, Paul is willing in verse 3 to say about Psalm 69, Psalm 69 is about a guy who so identifies with the insults that people insult God with, that he takes the insults personally. That's what Psalm 69 is about, that verse 3 is quoting. Uh, Paul's willing to say about Psalm 69, written 700 years before Paul lived, before Jesus lived, that's about Jesus. That's what he does here. That, that Psalm's about Jesus. And uh, that may sound a little strange to you, unless, of course, you realize that Jesus did this all the time. That during his ministry, and even after his resurrection, as he's walking around on earth, he's, he took some people aside. And starting from the beginning of the Bible, the Old Testament, he explained to them how it was about him. That's in Luke 24. You should go read it. It's pretty awesome. Uh, he, how he explained to them that the Old Testament is about him. And uh, verse 12 reminds us, in sort of a summary form, that Jesus is the one who fulfills these promises. That the, the story, the story of how God's going to redeem everything is about Jesus. The root of Jesse, that is, the promised son of Jesse, the promised son of David, the promised son of Abraham, the promised son of... You just keep going back. This Jewish person who's supposed to come and fix everything will come, and he will rule the Gentiles in such a way that it brings them hope. That's the story of Jesus, a servant king who comes... As one of my professors used to say, we only know Jesus as he's robed in the garments of Scripture. The way we know Jesus is we are told about him in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's the only way we know him. He shows us what he's like there. And this is a really interesting thing. This really old story about Jesus, God still uses it today. He's still using it right now. That's what he says to us in verses 4 and 5. It's where Paul takes us now. Look pretty carefully. It's really interesting what he does here. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Okay, so he's saying these really old texts that you want to dismiss, they're actually written for you 
for your instruction, for your hope. That's not all he says. Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul's putting together? The endurance and encouragement of the scriptures. Okay? And then the next verse. The God of endurance and encouragement. Those aren't words that you typically just find in the same sentence by accident. Paul is saying that Scripture is marked by endurance and encouragement, and God is too. In other words, the way God grants us harmony, works encouragement in our lives, does these things, is through Scripture. God is at work by the story in order to produce in you the kind of life that He wants. He uses the old story. That's what I mean, the story is never old. The story is never old because it's never old to God. And God doesn't put it aside. He is constantly using that old story of who Jesus is and what He's done to do His work. To build in us hope and harmony and faithfulness and peace and joy. And that's what it means that it's our story. It's for our instruction, our encouragement, our faithfulness, our hope, our peace, our love. I want to talk for just a second about how we engage the Bible. Some of us don't engage it very much because we don't know what to think about it. That's a little bit understandable. Um, we can talk about that if you have questions about what Scripture is like. Uh, but for many of us who call ourselves Christians, we still have this weird relationship with the Bible. And uh, I'll illustrate it with this question. How many of you remember exactly what you ate last Tuesday for dinner? Not this past Tuesday, but nine days ago. You're weird. And, and, and uh, if you eat like the same thing every night for dinner, that doesn't count. Like, if you're so frugal that you only eat peanut butter crackers every night for dinner, you're disqualified. Not only in this contest, but also as a human. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding about that last part. It's not, it's not fair. Um, now, most of us will only remember one or two meals that we eat in an entire year. Maybe three or four. A banquet, a dinner, an anniversary dinner, a date, Christmas dinner, something about it. Some, a few will stand out. Most of us, on the other hand, do this thing that's completely necessary for our survival. Two or three times a day. One if you're a freshman because you forget you need to eat. Um, and yet, despite we don't remember, the, don't remember it, God still uses it to nourish and feed us. And some of you, the way you engage, in, in, engage Scripture is you sit down and you read it, or you go to a small group and talk about it, or you go to church and you listen to a sermon. At the end of it, you take your temperature and you're like, it wasn't a great meal. I'm not going to remember. It wasn't awesome. I don't know to think about that. And I want to tell you, for, stop doing that. This is God's means of, of feeding you. This is really God's means of feeding you. And you're not going to remember every sermon and every small group discussion and every time you sit down and read the Bible. It's not going to stick in your memory forever. It doesn't have to be awesome. But God will use it to feed you and nourish you. So this is the way God builds His people through one story. And He is building one people through this one story. Um, and, and as He does so, we are marked by a by a certain quality of life together. Um, this life is marked by faith, hope, and love. By faith, hope, and love. Only we're going to talk about it in the opposite order. Hope, and love, and faith. 
uh, in verse 4, if you look, you'll see that uh, God is using His Word, His story, for our instruction, that through this Word, the Scriptures, we might have hope. Okay? He's working in us that we might have hope. And um, this is not a silly optimism that's divorced from reality. If you were to ask most casual observers of me if I'm a hopeful person, they might say no. Um, And that's because I consider myself to be brutally realistic. Yet, I would say that is not antagonistic to biblical hope. Because my hope is not in humanity, per se, or chance. I have genuine hope because of who God is and what He's done. I have a hope and a confidence that's based in the reality that God has worked in the past. That He's made promises and He kept them in Jesus. I have confidence in him because he is currently at work in his people in a powerful way. If you have known faith and hope and love in a community of believers, then you have reason to be confident in him, to have hope. It means God's at work. So I have hope because I'm confident that God's at work. Uh, I'm convinced, convicted even, that God's going to finish the story he started. He promised a king would come and renew all things. And he's come and he's gathered a people together and he's renewing them and making them beautiful. Why, why would I be convinced that he's going to finish the story? Why would I not have hope? Now the hope, opposite of hope is uh, cynicism. And uh, that is unfortunately something I am not, well, I have it. I wouldn't say I'm blessed with it. Um, I, you can't be hopeful and cynical at the same time. Because the human heart's a freaking mess. Uh, shouldn't be the case, but that's the way it is. Um, but uh, one of our better cultural critics, Conan O'Brien, uh, had something really good to say about cynicism. Uh, if you remember, and you probably don't, because it's only five years ago, but you were just babies then. Um, he was ushered into NBC to take over the late show. And then within like two months, they canceled him and kicked him back out. And uh, there's a huge uproar, especially among his fan base, about this. And his last words were, all I ask is one thing, particularly of young people that watch, don't be cynical. I hate cynicism. For the record, it's my least favorite quality, and it doesn't lead anywhere. Now, he doesn't really give us a reason for why cynicism is wrong. But what he says there is right. It doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't. If you have no hope... If you see through everything, you'll be marked by apathy and indifference. There's no reason to do anything. (laughs) Why should I care? If you're marked by hope, you have reason to get out, to serve, to be industrious, to, to literally hope for the best and to engage the world, trusting that Jesus is at work. So we have reason to hope. We have love for one another. Uh, Paul here says that the scriptures that God uses, this old story, makes in us a harmony. It's a strange word, but basically it means he knits our hearts together in such a way that we love one another. That we really do. In verse 5 and 6, he says this harmony produces a unity such that we praise God with one voice. See that up there, probably. We have harmony in verse 5, leading us to praise God with one voice. Um... That's perhaps hard for us to imagine. I almost get this like Disney cartoon 
version-ish of Unity when I do this. Everyone just the same, singing the same thing, happily with a plastic smile on their face. That's what love is. And um, that is not at all what the Bible is describing. Um, Paul knows what reality is like. He knows how hard it is to love people. The last two chapters, we talked about how hard it is to love people. If you weren't here last week and the week before, he talks about how hard it is to love people that are different than you. He, he tells us in this text, hey, love looks like bearing with people. Verse 1. It means serving others and not pleasing yourself. That's really hard. We call that sacrifice. That's loving one another. It means welcoming other people when you don't want to. That's what love looks like. And yet, it's a reality that God builds this kind of love into His people when we embrace the story. And lastly, we, we are able to love one another and have this kind of harmony and have this kind of hope, not because we produce it on ourselves, because we're awesome, loving, hopeful people. It's because we share common faith. You, you see it here in verse 5, you see it in verse 13 as well, that we have this when we're in accord with Jesus Christ. Or in verse 13, where he says uh, that the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace in believing. That is, as we understand who Jesus is, as we trust Him, as we believe in Him, we will agree with Him more. And as individuals, we agree with Him more, we will be more like Him. And we will agree with one another more. We'll be marked by harmony and love for one another because we have a common faith in Jesus that makes us like Him, marked by hope and love and faith and peace and joy. In the uh, 1920s, there was a pretty well-known Western philosopher who sat on a log and he heard a buzzing sound. And puzzled, he fell into deep contemplation. And he reasoned, if there's a buzzing noise, someone's making a buzzing noise. And the only reason for making buzzing noises I know of is because you're a bee. And so he thought longer, thought longer, and uh, said, the only reason for being a bee that I know of is making honey. So he thought longer, and he thought longer, and then he stood up and said, The only reason I know for making honey is so I can eat it. Uh, Winnie the Pooh, noted philosopher from 1926, uh, here mirrors exactly the way many of us think about community and Christian community in particular. Winnie the Pooh here is a bald individualist pragmatist. He is. The only reason for these things to exist is to meet my need. It's to meet my need. Thank you, B, for meeting my need. Uh, and many of us walk into communities, whether it's any community on this campus, or, uh, a club, an organization that you join to fill your resume, or an aching, longing in your heart, a sense to belong, or even a Christian community. But we often look, walk in looking for opportunities for our needs to be met, to be fed, or a place to shine frankly, a place to show how awesome I am, to, dis- to exhibit my glory, and to stuff my resume. And uh, in that way, we're very much like Pooh, pragmatist individualists engaging the community for our own good. But what we need to see in this text is this community that Jesus is building through his story, it's not about us. It's never about us. He invites us in. He transforms us beautifully into a place where we belong, where we have faith, hope, and love. But it's not about us. It's a place marked by loving others sacrificially. And ultimately, it's marked not by our glory, it's marked by His. You see it three times in this text. That when we praise God with one voice in harmony, it brings glory to God. 
verse 5 and 6, I believe. That when we welcome one another genuinely with loving hearts, it brings glory to God. If we're in this community or any other community for our own glory and not for God's, in it for our own good and not for the good of others, we're missing something. We really are. We're missing something very fundamental about the nature of this community that God is building. Well, lastly, um, we see that God is building this one people through this one story. And this people is marked, these people, us people, his people, ugh, are marked by one common mission. Um, and that mission is very simple. It's to join Jesus in welcoming the world. Uh, I said it's an old story, and it is an old story. And that really becomes very clear in verses 9 and following. Paul here quotes from four different Old Testament texts. Quotes from Isaiah, from the Psalms twice, from Deuteronomy. And what he's doing here every time, and if you look carefully, you, again, you might wonder, why are you talking about Gentiles all the time? It's very simple. God from the beginning promised he was going to bless the entire world. That he wanted redemption and peace and hope to come to the whole world. But he made this promise to a very small group of people, the Jews. And those people tended to forget that they were supposed to be a blessing to the world. They tended to forget. God never forgot. He never forgot. He talked about it all the time. As you see right here, four different places in the text. And Paul could have given a lot more. God's crying out. For the world to come to Him. For the nations, for the Gentiles, that includes most of you, uh, to come to Him. And what we're seeing in our text is, just like Jesus, verse 7, welcomed us, we're to welcome others. Just like Jesus didn't serve Himself, didn't please Himself, but served others. Just like Jesus is on a mission to the nations, we are to join Him. We're to join Him. It's not a mission that God's on by Himself. It's not just his mission. It's not just my mission. If you're part of his people, this is your mission. To be a blessing to the world. And the world starts actually in here. There are people here that don't quite understand what this is. But right there. This is start on the other side of the ocean this summer when you go on your awesome trip. When you're a two-week mission trip. It doesn't start spring break when you go on a spring break mission trip. It starts with your sweet mate, your roommate, your sister at home who thinks you're crazy. Your mom who's angry at you because you're thinking about Christianity. It starts right here next door to you with your neighbors. God wants us to be a blessing to the world. As they come to see that this great King Jesus has come to offer them mercy to offer them forgiveness, to offer them uh, a relationship with Him and a relationship with His people where they can be part of a community that loves them um, and knows them well. I want to talk for a second about posture, then I'm done. Uh, I've been thinking about posture a little bit because I'm getting old and I have a bad back. And um, that's, that's terrible, by the way. Start getting old and having a bad back. Um, but I do think about posture some. And uh, the way I'm thinking about what we talked about now is posture. Uh, the posture of a community characterized by the things I've just talked about should look sort of like this. That we as a group of people, the church, Christian community, and for you that are listening in as people that aren't quite sure what you are thinking about Christianity, this would be a great thing for you to assess. I would love for you to come and talk to me about what you see. That would be tremendously helpful uh, as far as our posture goes. But our posture should be a group of people centered, focused on Scripture and Jesus. 
We're focused around the Word because this is how God makes Himself known. This is the way by which Jesus, who's coming to give hope to the world, makes Himself known. So we're centered here. Yet. We are centered together. We're not hiding together with our Bible under the desk or in the corner all by ourselves. We are centered together as a community. One people gathered together in love, supporting and loving one another. That's how we're centered on the Word. We're together. And yet, we have a mission. And so we're not a closed-in group with our back turned to the world. That's not our posture. Our posture is we're centered on the Word, together, open. Open to the world. Inviting, asking, looking for people to join us, expecting people to join us, asking people to join us. That should be our posture. That's the kind of people we should be. This means you should always be asking yourself, who can I invite? Who can I welcome? What can I welcome them to? You should be asking yourself those questions. Well, I'm going to finish up the story real quickly. Uh, King Albert was a great king. He was a great servant of the people. He couldn't speak. He came to speak. He came through much practice and much suffering to overcome his fear so that he could speak. And he gave a great speech. Um, And it's a moving story. I suggest you watch it. It's it's wonderful. Uh, But we have, and, and the people rallied behind him. They did. But we have a greater king. A global king. A king for the ages over all the nations who speaks a message of grace and mercy to us, who makes promises to us and who keeps them, who, who brings us together as a people. And, and it's our job not only to hear that story, that one story, but to be shaped by it as a community, to grow in love for each other and service one another and hope for one another, and then to share that story and to invite others into that story. All right, let's pray together.